So the scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relationships with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus, the word of the Lord. So many of you for your positive comments on on our Advent series, and um, it's been it's been refreshing from personally to walk through this season with you um, and to look forward with great anticipation uh, to Christmas next Sunday. Grounded in hope, fostered in peace, birthed in joy, love is what faithfulness looks like. <clears throat> love is the outward expression of joy, of peace, and of hope. Love is the acting out of joy. Really, it's more than just acting it out or or actions of, of joy. It's a consistent pattern of actions. Consistent pattern of acting out one's joy, peace, and hope. I'm pointing because we have these signs, our themes around us. In short, love is a verb, if you remember the old DC Talk songs, if you're of my generation. Love is a verb, it's an action. As we saw in John's letters a few months back, <clears throat> excuse me, love is sacrificial in nature. Love gives up what it deserves that others might thrive. Love gives up what it thinks it deserves we live in a rights culture. I'm not sure that's a, always the healthiest thing when we're claiming our own rights. Now, pursuing the rights of others is a wonderful thing. Love gives up what it has every right to that others would thrive. We see this in Jesus. God pouring out God's self for the world. That was a kind of a synopsis of what I want to say. 
we'll pause, we'll look back into the passage. A passage that is probably familiar. We, we, you've probably heard this. I always want to be careful uh, making those sorts of statements because I hope that there are people here or that we will engage with that don't know Scripture, that don't know these passages, um, <clears throat> or we assume a high level of familiarity. But this is one of those sections that you've probably heard before from Scripture. Matthew, now we skipped over the genealogy. Um, you're welcome, Dean. But, but, and I know as a young person, I would do that. And I tell teens and children often, you know, do that. You're starting, you're reading scripture. You get bogged down with something like a genealogy. Uh, just, just skip it. Just move on. The point is to read scripture and get used to it. That doesn't mean you should always skip it. That doesn't mean there's not helpful information there. Uh, but it's very easy to just get bogged down and close it up. And then, you know, seven years later, you've never read scripture since then. Okay? And that, that's a true story. But... Uh, in that genealogy, I want to point out a couple things because what Matthew does is he begins his account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus in a similar way to what I've done the last couple weeks, providing a lot of background into the, the, the Jewish history that leads up to the birth of Jesus. He's setting the stage for Jesus. The particular way that Matthew sets the stage here is by giving us, quote, a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you know anything at all, you know that he's not the son of Abraham and he's not the son of David. So David, er, uh, Matthew is doing something. He's starting off with a, a theological, a, a genealogical statement. And then he sort of fills in those gaps. Because clearly David and Abraham are two really important people in the history of Israel. And so Matthew's saying, this Jesus... He's on that level. He's in their lineage. We should pay attention to him. And then he says, let's fill in the blanks. What he gives us is a, is a basic genealogy from Abraham to Joseph, his, his earthly father, uh, which is a paternal genealogy. Different cultures tell genealogies different, differently. Right? But, uh, but what he does is he gives us a paternal genealogy with an asterisk, with some exceptions. And the exceptions are so interesting, I just have to point them out. Things like, I, I know for myself, if I was going to give my genealogy or my history, if you said, give me your history of what you've, what you've accomplished in the last 30 years, I probably don't want to pepper in all my failures, all the weird stuff. I mean, maybe you don't have those moments, but I certainly do. But that's what Matthew does here. One of the reasons I can't help but just look to the validity of this story because it's weird. So, for example, he, he, he goes in there. It's a paternal um, uh, genealogy, but he includes Rahab, who, by the way, was a, a Canaanite woman, not Israelite. So if we think back to what we've been saying the last couple weeks, she was a Canaanite woman, most likely was a, was a prostitute. We shouldn't always make these assumptions about every woman we encounter in Scripture, and unfortunately that's often the case, but, but probably was something in the line of that profession. I think our kids are gone. Do you have any questions about what that means? You can ask a friend over lunch. <clears throat> then we have Ruth, who's a wonderful figure, but she's a Moabite who became an Israelite. So again, thinking about the, what God is doing in the covenant and desiring all people. We have a Moabite in there. Then we have this curious, really no need to throw this in here, but Matthew says, uh, by the wife of Uriah, doesn't say Bathsheba, which is 
shady enough, if we're honest, but calls her the wife of Uriah. So in his genealogy, Matthew makes sure to point out that one of, one of Jesus' important ancestors, you know, had, had a guy killed and slept with, her, with, with his wife. And then we end with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus, and we, we get to the end there. But those are just a few things. Genealogies are actually far more important than you'd think in Scripture, and often you'll find stuff like that. Little, little notes sprinkled in that are clearly trying to say something more than just purely you know, an orderly account. Matthew's trying to make it clear that the whole Gospel of Matthew, the, the agenda, is to, is to portray the Jewishness of Jesus. Everywhere, Matthew's trip, tripping up over himself to try to point out that what he does here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. What he does here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He wants Israelites to know that this Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. He doesn't look like what you thought he was going to look like. He doesn't do the things you thought, but he really is him. But even in that, he makes sure to point out places like this where we have other, other we have the ites in there, you know, non non Israelite folks, uh, and we have we have sin and human failure in this drama in this family tree as well, right? What family tree doesn't have that? Jesus is no exception. Matthew is saying. So then we make it through the genealogy, which we didn't read, but we just summed up here. <clears throat> and we have now the birth of Jesus the Messiah takes place in this way. Um, we don't get as many details as we get later and in, and in Luke. But we have Mary and Joseph. They're engaged, but they're not married. Uh, you probably know some about this. They have a, a long betrothal period as the families get accustomed to one another, as finances work themselves out, as they prove themselves, things of that nature. But they, they, weren't, uh, uh, they weren't cohabitating uh, and they weren't doing other you know, adult activities with one another uh, or else. Um, certainly those things did happen then like they do happen now. But, but back then, if that happened, they were risking extreme, extreme um, issues which we'll get into in just a moment. So we skip right on up to the birth. We have Mary. Just to pause on Mary for a moment. Could preach sermon after sermon after sermon on Mary. I'm more convinced every year that I go through this that Mary is probably the most important human being in Scripture aside from Jesus. Not in some weird Catholic way, don't worry. But she's really, really important. And one of the most important things, bless you, one of the most important things about Mary is the thing that we just simply overlook. God comes to her. The angel comes to her. Which, by the way, if you read Scripture and pay attention, anytime an angel comes to anyone, what's the response? Anybody know? Fear. That's right. Fear and trembling. And if you read the Old Testament accounts, it's kind of like meeting, if you've seen the old sci-fi kind of horror movie, Alien. It's like meeting that. The, 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 uh, the angels don't appear to be so handsome and good looking as we often portray them in the movies. They're weird and scary. And so both because there's like overpowering power and light and also they just have all these wings and arms and things. It's always fear. And even if it is somebody, because sometimes it does look just like a person. It's always fear. Mary, no. Mary's not afraid. And when God says through the angel, this is what I want to do. I would like you to have a child out of wedlock, essentially. The timing's not going to work. People can do math. They'll probably figure this out. 
And this child's going to be my son, blah, blah, blah. But the most important part of this is that God comes to Mary and says, Hey, here's my proposition. And then lets Mary decide. Have you ever stopped and just thought about that? God risks the entire entirety of the drama up until now on whether or not this probably 13-year-old girl will say yes to the most terrifying, strange thing she's ever encountered. And of course, we know today the, the world is different. I mean, yes, all kinds of different avenues for birth happen and we're used to that and we figure it out or whatever and sometimes there's shame and sometimes there's joy and, and you know, God brings blessing out of, out of all kinds of experiences. But back then, if you were found to be with child and you weren't fully consummated, wedded, and the, you know, period has gone by of nine months or so, you, you, it was very likely that you would be killed. If you weren't killed, your child would be ostracized forever. Your family might be. Your husband would likely stone you or get, or get rid of you. Or if it was him, your whole family would be in trouble. Your access to just a job, basic things of life, might be cut off. Your only hope might be to move to a total new place and sort of pretend and start over. And that wasn't as easy as it was today. You know, they didn't have airplanes and trains and things. And word got around. So when this little girl is approached by the angel of the Lord, not only does God risk everything, what if she said no? You ever thought about that? What if Mary would have said no? I believe she genuinely could have. I don't know what God's plan B was, but she said yes. And she said, yes, God... And in doing so, she risked all the trouble and scorn and potential death that it could bring to her and to her baby and to Joseph, whom she loved. And then we get Joseph introduced, a righteous, and, uh, righteous man unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. And of course, again, we, 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 we live so distanced from this, we just think, well, that's good. He's a good guy. Good job, Joseph. Right, but again, it was more than, or, or we think, oh, he could have stoned her, but that'd be awful. I mean, you stone your fiance, that's not a nice thing to do. But, again, the way that, the way that culture worked, the way that this worked back then, if people did the math, if people kind of figured out, well, she's married, I mean, she's pregnant, and you're not fully married yet, or the math doesn't work out, the number of months or whatever, either, He's going to get killed for, for taking advantage of her and so forth. Or their whole family will be ostracized. He won't be able to make a living. That's another aspect of just biblical life. The, the, the access to work um, was, was something guarded by the community. And then when we get into the Roman times as well, it's guarded by the, um, uh, the, the various uh, divinity, uh, cults and connected to, to different uh, gods and things. But if you didn't play by the rules... If you were ostracized for any reason, it didn't simply mean that you didn't have like people to go out with on Friday night or you didn't have Facebook friends. It meant you couldn't work and therefore you couldn't eat, you couldn't live. So by, by, not only by Mary saying yes, but when Joseph says yes to this dream and decides not to shame her, he's risking all sorts of, he's, he's basically saying it, it's going to go on him, it's going to look bad on him. And he's risking his own death. 
his, his family being ostracized, having no access to work or to funds or whatever. How on earth could he do this? Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son who will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke, and he did as the Lord had said. That is not an easy thing to do at all. So the question today, as we think about love, is how could they have done this? Mary could have, probably should have said no. Joseph, it would have, I know it sounds brutal, but it would have made more sense to maybe just quietly dismiss her. You don't have to stone her, but just kind of quietly dismiss her and this child, which is not his, because he's risking the entirety of his future. It really is that big of a deal. We've been considering up to now that the conditions uh, within which the birth of the Messiah, of Jesus, come about. The birth of the Savior. We began with hope. And I've tried to, to, make some, to connect some of these themes for us in case it's helpful. So what I've suggested is that hope leads to peace. That hope uh, is something that, that births peace. If we have pe- hope versus fear, hope can cause peace. That peace... If we, if we have it, if we rest in it, if we, if we truly have peace, peace can give, can, can, by fostering that, it can give us joy. Last week I discussed joy and talked about how joy was something that, it's both something you work for, like happiness, but it's also a gift. The, the root in Greek uh, is the same as, as gift or grace. And so it's a combination of hard work towards like good character and a good life and the, and the, and the gift of God, the grace of God. And what I want to, now we talk about love as we finish our Advent themes. And what I want to suggest is that while hope is the foundation for peace, peace allows joy to grow. Joy gives birth to love. In joy, when we have joy, when we experience the joy of the Lord, it, it, it gives birth to love. And love, as I've already suggested and, and will continue to do so, it's an action. It's a consistent pattern of action. It's not a, it's not a romantic feeling. It's not a mental uh, leaning one way or another. It's not a mood. Those things do resonate with and kind of float around love. But love ultimately is, is an action. And it's really a consistent pattern of action. Think about something like a marriage, if that applies to you and if you know that. I've mentioned this before, but you know that the feelings that you had, you know, 5, 10, 50 years ago are just nothing except kindling to get something going. And you learn along the way that love is this consistent pattern of actions and sacrifice and service that might look so much different than those romantic and and or lustful thoughts that you had early on, but they become a pattern of action that is love. The same can be said of, of friendship. The same can be said of, of, of you know, brother and sister, parent relationship. Love is a consistent pattern of actions. So why does God consistently act in this way, in, in love and sacrifice? Why do Mary and Joseph here in this story act in this way of sacrifice and love? Well, they have the obedience of hope 
the fostering of peace, the cultivating of joy. And in all of this, they have love and they learn to act loving. Now for God, God just is love. God is pure love all the time for creation. God is love. We've talked about that. We know that. God simply is this. But what about Mary and Joseph? Because I think this is where we can relate to this today. What on earth would cause them, would give them the guts, the fortitude, the grit, whatever you want to say, to, to act in this way, to say yes to God, to risk everything? Well, I think it was because they had hope, peace, and joy in their life. I think it was because they knew the stories of God and they believed them. I think it was because they clearly had just enough of that the prophetic leaning of the message of the prophets that they thought, you know, God is going to do something new and I made this this must be it. And they were willing to say yes. This all of this, this hope, peace and joy resulted in their willingness to live loving, sacrificial lives, so that when God comes to them and says, Here's what I would like you to do, I'm not going to force you. But I would like you to do this. I believe that firmly. Our God is not a coercive God. God has a firm will. I'd really like it if you do this. And if you don't, I might rain down fire. But I'm not going to force you. I can always pick somebody else. That kind of thing. What would cause him to do this? And therefore, how can we experience hope and peace and joy so that we are people of love today? How can we relate to all this? That's the point as we go towards a close. Well, I think there's a lot of different answers, and I think that the answer is, it's somewhat subjective. You're all different, we're all different. Um, but, but one theme that I pick up on, that I think about, at least I've been thinking about this week and the last couple of weeks, is I think about how do we become people of love. It has to do with what's around us. Because again, I want to say that love is not just a feeling or emotions or whatever. Love is an action. It's this consistent pattern of actions that you demonstrate. Doesn't mean they're always perfect and always loving. So, for example, are you, do you know joy? Do you know what joy is? Do you experience joy in your life? Do you have peace? Do you hold on to hope? Do you have these things? Are you surrounded by the sort of environment that would allow you to act sacrificially in love? Now again, for all of you, it's going to look sort of different. I know for myself, when I think of this, I immediately think of like what that won't look like, what it doesn't look like. I know for me, one of the best decisions I ever made, this might sound funny to you, was to stop watching the news uh, and to stop watching sports news and to not listen to talk radio because all they do all the time is tell me who needs to be fired, who needs to be impeached, what's wrong with the world, everything's terrible, this is going to happen tomorrow. It's just constant. Yeah, the Broncos aren't doing so good this year, clearly, but there's also a whole lot of reasons why that is. But if I listen to talk radio, man, I'm going to go out and like shoot the team or something, right? Or I'm going to move on to, I don't know, somebody else. That's how it sounds when you listen to the radio. Or, I mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't know the news. For me, personally, I, I use online sources that I, I just try to read about what happened in the world, and then I move on. Less people telling me what to think about it, and more just finding out what happened. Especially the 24-hour ones. I don't care if it's CNN or, or Fox News or Al Jazeera or whoever it is that you want to watch. If it's ESPN or any, any company... 
I mean, they're making money in a certain way. And if it's 24 hours a day, they got to work real hard to get you to watch it over and over and over and over again. And there's only so many sports highlights. Or there's only so many times they can tell you what happened down the street until they begin to tell you how awful it is and they begin to like draw you in with fear or with anger. And you can't let go of it. And that causes you to keep watching it. It does emotional things in your body. Scientists can tell you all about that. You can't let go of it. And now you just watch and watch and watch. And then you kind of shrivel up into somebody who doesn't have very much hope, no peace. What joy? What are you talking about? Joy. And then therefore, how are you going to act in love if you're surrounded by such negativity? Everything's wrong in the world. Now that doesn't mean that everything's right in the world. That doesn't mean that every leader, sports team, person, whatever, that they're all great. No. But for me, I learned, man, I have so much better to do than like leave ESPN on for four hours or CNN or Fox News or some other. You just fill in the blank with whatever news channel you think is somewhat decent. For me, I realized, well, I could be reading a book during that time or I could be taking a walk or I could be building something or doing something or I could be. That's one reason for me. I I think I'm a fairly productive person because I just don't have those things on all the time. Now, for you, it might be very different. And again, don't hear me saying, don't find out what the news is. Don't check the weather. Don't find out what's going on with your sports teams. I'm not saying that. But it may be that having that stuff going on constantly around you is like living in a blender or something. And you're not going to come out of it unscathed. Right? For, the, for, for, for Mary and for Joseph, I think it's clear that they were surrounded by such joy and peace and hope that they were able to do the craziest thing of all and say yes to God's plan, which just, I don't know what God was thinking. We're going to talk about it more next week. It's not the plan I would pick. And I think if I gave you all the task over the next week to rethink the incarnation, it's not the way you're going to come up with it either. And if it is, it's only because this is the story you know and you're not the most creative. And that's okay. That's okay. This is just probably not how we would do it. It's certainly when we get to Easter and the crucifixion, that's not how we would do it. The way they were able to act in love is because they were surrounded by joy, by peace, and by hope, and therefore they were able to act differently. They were able to act in love. So this week, as you consider wrapping up Advent and preparing for, for Christmas, as you consider love and what I'm suggesting to you, it's an action. You can't be a person of love and not act it out. If you're mean to everybody around you, if you get on social media and you're just ripping people apart so you're getting kicked off all the time or whatever, then, then you're not a person of love. That's okay. God loves you. And you can change. We can and we, and we do change. We have to find a way to get our environment around us to slow down, to calm down, to be a little less negative so that we have the ability to think positively, to act positively, to do something good for our family, for our neighbors, for the world. And this is big picture, it's little picture too. I know as a dad, I'm not always the most gracious, loving and forgiving person. Maybe I, I go to work at four in the morning and I come home and I'm tired and then I'm needed to do something and I think, oh, no, why can't you do this? That? And I get frustrated all the time. Sometimes what I need to do is I'm going to go take the dog for a walk for 10 minutes and breathe some fresh air and calm down so that I can come home and be more gracious. You probably do the same sort of thing. 
But the trick is, do you actually do it? Maybe it's you need to go get a cup of coffee and sit down for a minute. Maybe you need to do your crossword puzzle or Sudoku or maybe you need to take a nap for 30 minutes. I don't know what it is. But you have to find those ways in your life to, to slow everything down, to quiet everything down, so that your life is a bit more peaceful, a bit more hopeful, so that you can experience glimpses of joy here and there. Because those things will then allow love to start growing in your life so you can act it out and be a person of love. Amen? Three takeaways, real quick. So love is the acting out of joy. I believe that firmly. Love is an action. It's the next one. Love is a verb. It's not, it's not a feeling. It's, not a na- it's a verb. It's the way you act. It's a consistent pattern. You're not going to do it perfectly all the time. But you're gonna, it's a direction you're heading in. It's, it's a way of being. And then finally, this was mentioned in here. We're going to talk about it more last week. Emmanuel. That's the result of their love. Of their acting out of love. Is Emmanuel God with us? This is God's definition of love. Jesus. Jesus is God's definition of love. That's what we saw in, in the Johannine epistles. Jesus is the definition of love. And what Jesus is, who Jesus is, is God pouring out God's self for those who don't deserve it. For us. Sacrificially. So the incarnation, that's a big word, but that just means God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That includes Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then his his ultimate uh, second coming, his return. This is love defined. And Emmanuel, I'm convinced, is the most radical word in the English language and in other languages as well. God with us. God who is above and, and beyond all things loves us to the point that says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much you hate me or reject me or walk away from me. I know I've been silent for all this time. I know you don't seem to get it. But I'm not just going to give you a message. I'm going to give you myself. It's the only way I can get this fixed. I'm going to come and I'm going to live amongst you. I'm going to be one of you fully so that you can be with me again. And that's what Christmas is all about and we'll talk about it next week. Father, we thank you so much for your gracious act of love. It is just who you are. You didn't choose to act in love. You just are love. I pray that we would get just a glimpse of that, a taste of that, that we could act in love ourselves. I pray that you would help us to, to take the discipline to, to, to sit down and like think about our lives this week and think, what is it that's around us? Maybe it's the music on our radio or our iPods or phones or whatever device we use. Maybe it's the, the thing on the TV that frankly just sh- after 30 minutes we should shut it off. You know, maybe it's the conversations we're having or the uh, whatever. I don't know what it is. But give us the discipline to take a moment and step back and look at our lives and say, God, this is not joyful. It's certainly not peaceful. And I have no hope because of this. And if that's the way it is, then I pray that your spirit would help us to make a good decision to say, help me eliminate this thing. I'm addicted to this thing and it's so negative. Help, help me to distance myself from it. Give me another way to find out what's going on in the world or sports or, or my job or whatever it is. Give me some different music to listen to. Give me some different books to read. 
give me some peace so that I can know joy so that I can be a person of love. Lord, may we be Mary's and Joseph's. And there's no amount of explanation that will help make sense out of their choices because they were crazy and they didn't make sense. But they trusted in you. May we trust in you. And may we be people of love even when that doesn't make sense. That's our prayer today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and receive the benediction as we prepare to go out into the world, a world that desperately needs godly love demonstrated. May you go forth in love and may the joy of the Lord allow you to live lives of love. Go in peace. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week at 1030 only on Christmas morning.